This Is Actually Happening features real experiences that often include traumatic events. Please consult the show notes for specific content warnings on each episode and for more information about support services. It's never given that you're going to be here tomorrow or in the next hour. You got to respect that and you got to live your life accordingly. From Wondery, I'm Whit Misseldine. You're listening to This Is Actually Happening. Episode 219. What if you bled to death? Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the home of storytelling. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, as well as thousands of podcasts. Currently, I'm listening to The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson after I was inspired by watching the series and was told the audiobook had a lot more depth and intrigue. I've been riveted. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. With the app, you can listen anywhere, as it's all in one spot. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit Audible. Dot com slash happening or text happening to 500 500 that's audible.com slash happening or text happening to 500 500 this is actually happening is brought to you by progressive insurance most of you aren't just listening right now you're driving cleaning and even exercising but what if you could be saving money by switching to progressive Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. I grew up in uh, a small town in southwest Arkansas on the border of Arkansas and Texas. Lived in this town all my life. I was the only child. My parents didn't have me till they were in their 30s, so as a whole, they were older parents. Just a modest, uh, lower middle income family. Had a good life, had good parents, uh, raised in church, Christian, and, and believe in God. And um, just a just kind of a, a southern, good southern home. I've always loved basketball. I've loved any kind of sport, riding bikes, anything Kid baseball, kid football, kid basketball from five years old all the way through high school and into college. I've just loved, loved sports. And that helped a lot, you know, to to mold me as a person. 
not having any brothers and sisters, that was a chance for me to, to be around my classmates or my neighbors or, you know, and be able to learn that you're not always the best. You don't always win. Values in life that I got from sports, you know, have lasted throughout my life, you know, especially, you know, when you don't win, you know, that's not the only thing in life because everybody loses at some point. My dad owned a service station. I was three years old. Attendants pumped the gas for the cars. They changed tires. They did minor tune-up work. He was actually one day working on a car. It was up on the jack stands raised up so he could get underneath it. And some reason or another, the car rolled off the front of the, the jack stands and pinned him around the waist area in front of the car. It crushed his pelvis, uh, his, his right hip. He was in the hospital for about six months recovering from that. It was a very traumatic injury for him. He was never able to go back to work. He couldn't work on his leg all day. So the field of work that he knew he could no longer do. So I grew up with him at home. He taught me how to persevere through that type of an injury. And I wanted to try to make sure that something like that never happened to me. My mom worked and did the home chores as well. So it was, it was really tough for her. My mom didn't make a lot of money, but never did without. But also probably in my neighborhood, we were probably on the lower of the incomes. And uh, I'm sure there was plenty of times where he didn't feel adequate. And I'm sure he wanted to be, you know, play a bigger role as far as the traditional father figure from those times. He had uh, pain throughout his life. He had a limp. And I'm sure it did affect him mentally. Most families, most of the mothers were at home and they cleaned and cooked and took care of the kids. And the, of course, the father was at work and came home, took care of the yard and the, the house and the property. So it kind of was a larger burden put on my mom. My mom was always the glue. She was the glue of the family. She had to be. Not saying she wasn't prior to this accident with my dad, but, but for sure afterwards she was. Going through school, I, I couldn't really decide what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I knew I wasn't a good enough athlete to get paid to play a game. I probably was a C-plus student. I wasn't great. I wasn't terrible. I didn't really have a strong urge to go any one direction. I was very shy, very quiet. College seemed to be a new start, you know, uh, even though it was in, in the same town, it was a place that I could start over with people, a lot of people that I'd never seen before, never knew. So it gave me a chance to kind of be more uh, open, a little more charismatic. And I met some of my best friends today I met in college. After college, I um, immediately went to work for a rural telephone company I'm at today. I got married at 29, had a uh, my first daughter, when I was 30, bought my first house. I had a good job, good insurance, good retirement, great neighbors, family was happy, all was good. Most of my friends revolved around basketball. Played pickup basketball three, four times a week. I had a pretty big network of friends. During the off season, they were all duck hunters. So I kind of started hunting mainly as a way to just to be able to spend more time with them. Once I started, I really, I'm, I'm kind of one of those persons, when, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all out. So I immediately wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn how to do my own duck calling, which is an art of its own. 
I bought a boat of my own. I got a dog, started trying to train it to retrieve ducks. I had a group of, you know, 15 to 20 guys that went to the lakes and scouted for ducks. This particular weekend that we went, we had had a really abnormal large amount of rain that had fell the week prior to this weekend, which is always good for ducks. The five of us uh, leave out at four o'clock in the morning. Poor weather usually helps duck hunting. So cloudy days, rainy days, cold, you know, all that usually pushes ducks south. And that's what we had had. So we were all excited about that particular season because all the elements were coming into place. This particular hunt, being that the water was so deep, uh, we were hunting out of the boats. We had an Avery blind, which is just about like a tent. If you can imagine putting a tent on a boat, my dog was with us that I had somewhat trained to retrieve. You start around daylight with your duck hunt. So we had hunted till about 11 and we decided that it looked like our day had dwindled as far as our chances. We were all ready to go in and get something to eat. I went to the left front of the boat and was taking down the Avery blind that we had up to conceal ourselves from the ducks. As we were taking down this blind, you know, I heard a, a noise, just a thud sound, and immediately had a um, fiery ball feel on, in the back of my leg. It felt like somebody was burning a circle in my leg in the back of my thigh with a like with a little blowtorch. I immediately lost my sight. I crumbled into the boat. Luckily, I didn't fall out of the boat, but I just kind of fell down into the boat. You know, I could feel things, but I don't remember seeing anything. I was feeling a lot of pain, just incredible amount of pain, not knowing exactly what had happened. Something bad's wrong. I had immediately started bleeding severely. I knew I felt the blood running down my leg. I knew how much was coming out of my leg. I knew I was dying quickly. What do we do next? I can remember, you know, briefly hollering. You know, it got the attention from the guys in the boat next to us. The guy that was in the boat with me, he lost all sense of reality and kind of was no help. So my good friend Scott jumped in the boat with me, and he immediately came in and started asking what happened other than me hollering. They really didn't know what, what the deal was. He asked, immediately asked uh, what happened, you know, while he was scrambling. And, and that's when the guy with me said, you know, the gun had discharged in the back of my leg. So until then, I really didn't know what had happened to me. And I just knew how far I was away from medical help. You know, how am I ever going to make it back to the bank? We were in such a remote location. How can I survive long enough to get to help in order to live? I just went into a mode of survive. I just didn't have time to think about, you know, was I going to be able to see my wife and kids the next day? But it was like I knew it's just a crazy thing. I just knew that I just didn't have time to do all that and survive. I could hear it in their voice. They were already, you know, panicking. I was more worried about if I started panicking, I just knew that wasn't going to help. I remember talking to Scott and going, hey, man, you know, you got to get a tourniquet on my leg. And remember telling him where to find, you know, a, a rope. And I also told him, you know, that I had a, a little knife, that was a clip-on knife that was on my, my duck bag. 
told him to get that, be able to, you know, to cut the rope to the length. So he got the rope, put the rope on my leg. First thing he did, he, he tied it off uh, up high on my thigh. Obviously, it wasn't near this calm, but I said, that's not tight enough. You're going to have to get it tighter than that. And I can remember hearing him break a limb in the tree, you know, that we were in and putting the limb in the rope and using it as a vice to be able to really secure the tourniquet really tight. I knew that it was as good as it was going to get when the tourniquet started hurting worse than the gunshot wound. We started the procedure of getting everything loaded into the boat so they could get me out. Probably 10 to 15 minutes from the boat ramp, and then we're probably 8 to 10 miles from the nearest city where there was an ambulance. We start out, they start the motor, we go probably 15, 20 feet, and I hear the motor stop. And I remember asking, hey, what caused the motor to stop? And Scott said, man, that net that we have on the Avery blind, it got out of the back of the boat and it got hung around the prop and it choked the motor down. So we're going to have to cut that off. So they jump out and they cut the net off of the, the prop, which seemed like, again, forever. It probably wasn't very long. We again start rolling back toward the bank. As we're running to the bank, I by that time, I had lost quite a bit of blood. The blood still wasn't running out to where Scott could tell how much I was bleeding because I had all those clothes on and it was filling up my boot. I've been told that I probably hold around 15 units of blood and they estimated I had lost about five units in there. I do remember looking down at some point in the boat to, at my leg and, it, and when they picked me up to move me, I looked down and remember seeing my leg not turn. My foot didn't turn with me. So it stayed turned the wrong direction. So I knew that I had, you know, massive bone injury there as well. As we're going back to the bank, you know, I was starting to struggle to breathe. I'm breathing and I'm breathing heavily, but I'm not getting oxygen. I can tell I'm my body's shutting down. It's a crazy feeling. It was terrible, and I would take, I remember taking a huge breath of air, and just as soon as it got in my body, I was needing another breath. I mean, it was just like I could not get enough oxygen in my body. I was like a battery running down. Every minute, you know, I was running down more and more and more, and nothing I did made a big difference. Since blood carries oxygen to our brain, you know, it's hard to tell someone how that feeling was, but I could tell that I was dying. I was starting to shut down. The pain in my leg was gone. I, I wasn't feeling pain so much anymore. I was scared as much as I could be, but I remember trying to think clearly enough to help. You know, I wanted to be a help and not a burden any more than I already was. So as we're going in the boat back to the ramp, I kind of was falling unconscious. When I would fall unconscious, you know, everything would slow down. The boat motor would sound, would get muffled. It was kind of like I was underwater, just floating freely and everything was okay. It was almost like I was just kind of floating in space. You know, I wasn't in pain. The pain went away. Everything slowed down. It was just more tranquil and it was real peaceful. Scott would slap me and wake me up and tell me, you know, hey, stay awake, stay awake. And, you know, pain, you know, immediately comes back in my leg, heart racing, having trouble getting oxygen to my brain. So I was breathing hard. 
for a certain amount of time, I would be awake and then I would go fall back into being unconscious. And then the same thing would happen again. I would just be real peaceful, kind of like I was floating, just real tranquil, no pain. But when he woke me up, I'd be right back into hearing that motor running accident and everything scary, everything scary going on with that for me. And, you know, and it was just like, just leave me here. Don't wake me back up. Let me stay here because I wasn't I wasn't hurting there. We did this probably three different times that I can remember. The boat ride itself back to the ramp, maybe 10, 15 minutes. I remember coming up to the ramp and asking Scott, hey man, you know, is the ambulance here? And I remember him saying, no, they're not here yet. And I remember calling him again. It was terrifying because I knew in my mind, you know, how long it took to get from my house to the boat ramp. Do I have 30 more minutes of life left? to get to the hospital, you know, it was, it was scary. It was very scary. He called 911, he got the operator and she said, you know, we've got a ground unit on their way. That was the best news that I could hear because I knew I was dying. The rider in the ambulance that come to get me at the boat ramp grew up three or four blocks from me. He was a lifetime friend. They load me up into the ambulance raised up and looked out the window and laid my head back down and just like turned the light switch off. And that's the last thing I can remember. This is Actually Happening is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Get more work done or take time to relax or spend it connecting with friends? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, but the question is, time for what? Most of us have trouble answering this question because we don't often prioritize what matters most. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy for me has often given me the space and time to reflect on what I really want to prioritize. Therapy doesn't take time, it gives time. Time to focus on what helps you thrive. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happening today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot happening. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. From that point on the bank, when I heard the ambulance to the time I woke up in ICU, that's a three-week gap that I I don't necessarily remember a lot about. I was having really bad dreams, and those dreams are very vivid. One dream, I was a drug dealer in Dallas, Texas, and I was actually running from someone else and was getting shot at. And then one dream I had uh, was where I was getting buried alive in a trench right before that weekend when I went hunting we were 
burying some new fiber optic cable under a, where they were building the interstate through our territory. There was a pretty wide, deep trench they were burying the cable about seven, eight foot deep. And I, in my dreams coming out of my coma, <laughs> was in that ditch and it actually did cave in on me. And I remember instead of somebody grabbing me and pulling me out, they threw me a water hose and I was able to breathe out of that water hose. I had been on a ventilator for 26 days. The ventilator, you're breathing through a tube. You know, just seemed like dream after dream. You know, I was dropped into a pit of rattlesnakes and, and I was having to, to run from them, you know, and to try to climb out, to get away from them. One dream, I was in, a, in one of our telephone company buildings. They uh, only have one door leading out, and some reason or other, the door got jammed, and the building was being flooded with water, and the water was filling up to the ceiling, and I was having to get up as close to the ceiling as I could to breathe, and just ridiculously bad dreams that I was having coming out of that coma. I woke up in ICU on uh, December the 24th. I had restraints on my arms and my leg because I would fight them. Coming out of the dreams when I would wake up, I would start fighting to get up. The restraints made the dreams worse. And then when I would wake up, I would be in a hospital. No one in there, four white walls, you know, just the generic, you know, hospital room. You wake up into that and it's kind of like, okay, so those dreams were very vivid and very real. And then I wake up in a hospital room, restrained on a ventilator with chest tubes in both sides of my chest and IVs in my neck. And so which one was real? And it was really hard to figure out. Finally, when I, when I woke up, I'd say peacefully enough to where I didn't cause a disturbance. I remember just looking around the room and kind of taking in, you know, basic things, you know, like the air conditioner, the heater blowing and and just normal sounds. And then, I, you know, I looked down at my leg and I had remembered enough to know that, yeah, I lost my leg. You know, I had those bad dreams, which were, here we are 21 years later, so they were very vivid to me today even. And I'd wake up from those dreams, which were really real, and then I'd wake up in a hospital with nobody in with me. I don't have my leg. I'm on a ventilator. You know, that was almost a, like a dream as well. I would wake up and try to move and get up and get around, and a nurse would come in give me more medicine. I'd go back to the dreams, stay in a dream for a while, and then wake up again to that hospital room, you know, so it was like, which one was real and which one wasn't. Getting shot and losing a leg, that could easily be a dream. That was just like the dreams I was having. So it was very difficult for me to bridge the gap there and, and wake up and remain calm. Eventually, I was able to kind of get my bearings enough to realize that, okay, not having your leg in that hospital bed is the real life. Looking down and not seeing, you know, two legs is definitely a different sensation. At that time, I wasn't feeling any pain in my leg, so it wasn't hurting me. It just wasn't there. I just started to think, you know, I'm alive. I did remember why my leg was gone because I knew from the boat, my leg was very mangled. I knew I was in really, really bad shape. So just waking up period was a blessing. I just was glad to be alive. Once I was able to see my parents, then I was able to kind of relate more to reality. And you know, I had people come in and explain to me some gaps on what had happened to me. 
my partner was at the other end of the boat. He had left his uh, 12-gauge shotgun loaded, not safe, not good. The reason he had left it that way is because it seemed like whenever you go to take down your gear, whatever it is, and go pick up decoys that are out in the water, it seems like ducks always come over you. It's almost like they're just coming by to laugh at you and go, ha ha, you know, he didn't get us. So he had left his gun loaded to maybe possibly catch that straggler duck or two while we were taking down and picking up our gear. His gun somehow or another fell over and hit the side of the boat discharging into the back of my leg, severing my femur artery and femur bone. That day was a 32, 34 degree day. So hunting out of a boat I had on, you know, thermal underwear, I had on jeans, bibs, knee boots with a heavy jacket. So I had on quite a bit of clothing. When I got shot, it's not like you see in the movies and blood goes everywhere. And it actually, the guys in the boat next to me thought that the gun had misfired, that there was a dud. The sound was muffled. They really didn't know what happened. They didn't know the gun. It went off. They didn't, they didn't have any idea. So they tried to radio out from the boat ramp to their main base to get air life started my way. And they couldn't get two-way transmission out. He couldn't get a needle started for an IV in my arm because my veins were collapsing due to the lack of blood. So they had to load me up and carry me out to the top of the hill, made contact with their helicopter. Their helicopter was already up and en route to a neighboring city to go pick up a respiratory patient. The people that flew me on the helicopter said that that saved me about 15 minutes. Once the the AirLife crew got to me, they said that uh, basically I was white, my lips were purple, the flight paramedic said that, that I was the deadest person they'd ever come upon and was still alive. About a halfway home on the helicopter, I went into complete cardiac arrest. My eyes were fixed and dilated and, you know, they were actually bagging me doing CPR. The hospital was there obviously waiting on me. In the elevator going down, there was a, a nurse named Christy that got an 18-gauge needle started in my arm. That was the first one that got started. Everybody else couldn't get a, a needle because my veins had collapsed due to the lack of blood. That was a miracle upon itself because that gave them a chance to start putting fluids back into my body. Upon arrival at the ER, the first procedure they did on me was a thoracotomy procedure where you they cut your chest open horizontally from the middle of your chest to the side of your body, break your ribs, and squeeze your heart. My trauma surgeon told me he squeezed my heart and it didn't expand back out. I just didn't have any blood left in me to fill my heart. My body, I'm 6'5 and 250, so I, I have probably you know estimated like 15 units of blood in my body. When you give a blood donation, a whole unit of blood is like 16 ounces. When I got shot in the boat, they estimated that I lost about three to five units. They estimated that I probably lost another third of my blood in the ambulance. And then the rest of it drained out in the helicopter in route because I was completely bled out by the time I got to the hospital. So I'd lost, you know, roughly 15 units of blood, which is three liters, basically. If you think of a three-liter bottle of pop, if you poured those on the ground, that's, I've done that before in a demonstration to Boy Scouts, you know, and that's a lot of, that's a lot of liquid.
So yeah, when they cut my chest open, broke my ribs, squeezed my heart, the first time they squeezed it, it didn't expand back out because there was no blood in my body. It didn't fill back up with blood because I didn't, I didn't have enough to fill it up. That was the first problem. They had to fix that problem before they could get my heart to beating again. So they started putting blood and blood components and they had to get, you know, blood into my body. I don't know. They had two blood machines, two doctors and several nurses pushing blood and blood components into me as fast as they could. And then once they got enough blood in me, he, he massaged, squeezed my heart again. And uh, it started beating without electrical stimulation, which was, you know, another miracle, too. The doctors lost me a couple more times. So my life was very fragile. My blood wasn't coagulating. It was bleeding out all over. Just a massive battle to keep me alive. My trauma surgeon needed about a four-hour surgery to be able to go in and repair everything in my leg to save my leg where the gunshot wound was. And he said he just wasn't able to keep me stable uh, long enough to be able to go do that kind of a surgery. So his thoughts were the only way to save me was to amputate my leg, seal that wound off. My dad having his accident, and then here's your son at, you know, 34 years old. When my, my trauma surgeon came out and told him, you know, hey, look, it looks like to us the only way we're going to be able to save his life is to amputate his leg. That was a really hard thing for my dad to be able to deal with. Uh, at that time, he was in his 60s. I'm sure he was extremely shook up about all of it to begin with. And then his own personal experience with being disabled from a leg injury, he had a lot of issues with that. And uh, he blamed the doctor, obviously, for not saving my leg you know, early on. May have blamed him for the rest of his life. I'm not sure. Eventually, I was put into a medically induced coma for three weeks. The trauma coordinator she put together a lot of statistics. And one thing was, you know, I had four complete body transfusions of blood. So that means, you know, I'd swap blood out four times. That they only have statistics on somebody surviving two body transfusions of blood. You know, there's a lot of things that there's no statistics on that I survived, but that's one of them. But the blood loss thing was huge. I mean, that was something the, the medical staff was, was fighting constantly. In ICU, they ran out of blood cartridges for the blood machine. They ran out of blood cartridges in the hospital because I used so many. The blood, loss of blood, and then the usage of blood in the first day was so massive that it overwhelmed my community. I mean, I, I basically used everything that was available in my community. Roughly, I used 83 units of blood in the hospital, 12 units in the first 48 hours, and the rest came over my stay, of six-week stay. I used 250 components of blood. There's a lot of different components in blood. So when you go to give, you give one unit. So basically, I used 83 pints of blood from different people. I had uh, one OR nurse told me four or five years ago, she said, you know, somewhere along the way, we tested your blood type during OR, and you went from O positive to O negative. You know, because O negative is, you know, the blood everyone can use. And so they had so much O negative in me that I had changed to O negative blood type. Being on the ventilator, you know, I couldn't talk. All I could do was write down things. I was still real weak. Uh, was I going to live another week? Because, you know, I didn't know if I was still health-wise, you know, was I out of the woods? Would I be able to, to live? 
Was I going to be able to live as normal a life as possible? All those things were running through my mind. I immediately started thinking, you know, how are you going to live being an amputee? There's a huge unknown. I was a telephone man. Obviously, I, I didn't ever deal with people that had lost their leg. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what my capabilities were going to be as an amputee. Everything from being able to drive to work. Basketball was a big part of my life that I really enjoyed, you know, doing on my spare time. Wasn't going to be able to play basketball again. I had two daughters at home. What kind of dad was I going to be able to be to them? I never, you know, knew what a prosthetic was. I, mean, I knew what they were, but I didn't know how they worked. I didn't know what you could do on them. Wondered if I would be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. Or if there was more, you know, wrong with me than just my leg, you know, because I, I remembered how, how much trouble I was having breathing. You know, did I have brain damage? And you don't know if everybody was telling me the truth. Was I just going to be awake for a few days and then I was going to die? Obviously a flood of questions that really nobody could answer. The uncertainty was massive. I quickly recovered. I was in ICU for uh, a week after I woke up. I went to recovery floor for a week, and then I was discharged to go home. I remember coming home, and I had a one-and-a-half-year-old and a, a, a four-year-old daughter and a stepson that was seven or eight, and they didn't realize how bad sick I had been, so they immediately wanted me to go back to being the dad I was prior. So I immediately had to start dealing with being an amputee immediately when I got home. My biggest objective was to get back to work because I thought if I got back to work, that would signify, you know, that I was back to as close to the person I was before. I stayed home for two weeks, just kind of getting readjusted to life. You know, since I was 16, I had worked all my life and really never been at home much during the daytime. So not working, I was there and, you know, there was now there's so much violence on TV. Anytime there was a, a gun involved on TV or any kind of shooting or whatever, you know, that made me cringe a little bit. And, you know, any kind of violence, it took on a different element for a period of time. I went to uh, outpatient rehab. I remember going there and them asking me, you know, what were my goals? I said, well, I want to go back to work. I thought going back to work would be the best thing for my kids and family. You know, being as I was raised up with my dad that never was able to go back to work, I felt like going back to work was the closest thing to reality for them and myself. Prior to that, you know, I'd never been in a wheelchair. So there I am now. I'm in a wheelchair. That's the only way I get around. And I'm dependent on somebody loading the wheelchair up. If I'm going to go somewhere, they got to load it up in the car. Prosthetic-wise, you know, I, it took about six weeks for me to get a prosthetic. My residual limb was swollen. I still had a, an open wound on my leg. Um, that 12-gauge, two-and-three-quarters shot shell holds 120 BBs. So I've still got about somewhere close to 80 stainless steel BBs in my leg today. The prosthetic world was a whole whole different game. Just putting it on and how you do that and how does it feel? And the leg I got now is computerized leg that actually kind of walks for me. But my first leg was mechanical. 
every step you got to think about walking. How do you learn how to walk? I mean, it's like learning how to walk all over again. Just went on a trip to Las Vegas last week and just flying now, being an amputee and flying. That's a big deal. You know, <laughs> you know, going through the process of checking bags and going through the metal detectors and them, you know, they always have to sit and take me aside and they always had to sit me down and they rub my hands with a solution, you know, and then they rub my leg with a solution and they, I guess they're checking for, you know, narcotics or maybe bomb material or whatever. Uh, I lose privacy when I, when I fly for sure. Just being an amputee as a whole, you know, you get the, the phantom pains, phantom sensation, phantom pains. They're legit. They're tough. Like right now, when we're talking about it, I can feel the foot and toes, toes that I don't have anymore. Well, I can feel those tingling now. Did not feel that prior to us talking about it. Usually, I'll have a stabbing sensation on the foot that I don't have, dumped a leg to my hip, and then back down in like a split second. And the pain is like very, very intense. So it'll make me jump a lot of times. But phantom pain is probably the worst thing that I have to deal with being an amputee. And it's kind of silly. You know, they don't know what causes them. Your brain just still thinks that you got that limb there and you don't. It's a new 100%. You know, I mean, I wasn't the person before, so what am I now? So everything, you know, from, from work to the grocery store, you know, what happens if I come upon a flight of stairs? Stairs are my biggest nemesis even today. You know, I don't look like everybody else now. That really didn't ever bother me a whole lot, but I just took it as, you know, that's who I am now and we're going to roll with it. Being a different person, I mean, that's that's still today. You never totally get over not being the person you were. That particularly has never went away. You know, if I wanted to go play a game of basketball, I could, I can't do that anymore. Not like I did could before. This particular time of year, you know, it's duck season. I can't duck hunt like I used to could. So there's a constant reminder that you're not who you were. Occasionally, it's not as much as it used to be. There was always there was something funny that would happen. You know, I would say be putting on my shoe, my right shoe, and several times I'd picked up my left shoe and tried to put it on my leg that's not there. You know, this is years into being an amputee, and here I am trying to put on a shoe to my leg that's not there. You know, my body still remembers, you know, I'm never going to get away from having to, you know, realize that, yeah, this is the new me. I'm not who I was. But the, on the flip side, not being here is a whole, whole lot worse than dealing with being an amputee. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. So my dad's injury changed his life. I watched him deal with it. I watched him some days deal with it better than others. 
he didn't go back to work, you know, which definitely was an influence to me on getting back to work. You know, that was probably why I was so adamant on getting back to work as fast as I could, because in my mind, that was the thing that I remembered about my dad is him not able to work. And that, to me, showed that he, he wasn't able to go back and live a, a quote-unquote normal life. Everything's back to normal when I go back to work, so to speak, even though they weren't. Growing up with him taught me kind of how not to do things, so to speak, as much as anything. It's probably harder on the people around me, me being an amputee, than it is for me a lot of times. I was told by my trauma surgeon going back at a visit with him after I was out of the hospital, and he told me that we offer counseling and and I remember thinking to myself, you know, oh, I'm okay, <clears throat> and I, you know, I'm I'm fine, you know, I'm all right, I'm I'm alive, and I've made it through this, so I don't need counseling. What I didn't realize was that just because I didn't necessarily think I needed it, it didn't mean that maybe somebody else didn't, and maybe my whole family might have needed it. But he told me then that, you know, when you go through a traumatic event such as what I did, your family either comes tighter than it ever has and nothing will ever come in between you or it's going to blow it apart. My parents had an issue in the hospital with my ex-wife. It revolved around information on how I was doing that didn't get transmitted to them. You know, again, them being older probably didn't help. Uh, they probably didn't understand a lot about what was going on with me. You know, I was for at least four or five days, you know, they didn't think I was going to survive. So it was a very fragile period of time. So therefore it made an animosity between my ex-wife and them. That also spun off to some of my friends not being real happy with my ex-wife, which did not help my marriage. I was just pretty happy to be alive. I didn't really understand what the magnitude of what was going on until it was probably too late. I guess I was just in the mindset of survival and moving forward and having a loved one being in life or death for that amount of time. And then the uncertainty with them went on for a lot longer than it did for me. I didn't grasp that for a long time. It was way too late by the time I started grasping it. I definitely remember the feeling of dying, and that's spooky. That's a real spooky feeling. Uh, you know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody ever because a helpless feeling. I guess the 10 or 15 minutes that I knew I was dying is stronger in my mind than, than the things that would get me down. You know, it, it's I knew how bad off I was. So it's not hard for me to go back to go, yeah, you know, it's, no matter how bad it is here, it's still a little better than where or what, you know, I could have been. It's something I don't always discuss, but the guy that was in the boat with me, you know, he lived, he lived a block or two away from me. He was seven, eight years younger than me. He was in his mid twenties, married, no kids. He was born and raised duck hunting. He had duck hunted far, far more than I had. And I'd just known him probably a year or so. And he was pretty new to the neighborhood. He went into shock when, when I got shot. And then during the hospital stay, he came back up one time when I was in ICU. And I remember seeing him and, you know, I remember him coming in and saying he was sorry. And I couldn't talk to him, but I remember him coming to see me. And then I went home. And I got home first day or two, and he called. He said, hey, if you don't mind, I'm going to come 
come down there and see you. I said, yeah, man, come on. And uh, that was the last time I ever talked to him. So it's uh, almost 21 years this went by, and I've never, never heard anything from him. Arkansas Game and Fish Commission had jurisdiction over my accident since I was on the water. So they did an interview with him at the boat ramp, and then they did an interview with him at the hospital. At the boat ramp, uh, I had a, a, a chocolate lab in the boat with me. He said that my dog was roaming around the boat and had hit his gun, pushed it over, pushed the safety off, pulled the trigger, and it shot me in the back of my leg. That was his story at the boat ramp. Then when he got to the hospital, he said that the, the dog was tied up and that the gun fell over and hit the side of the boat and discharged. Obviously, that's a huge difference in his story. So I always, instead of blaming the dog, I've always went with the second version there. Unfortunately, in, you know, in this day and time, lawsuits abound on situations where mistakes are made. And I don't know if he felt like, um, you know, I was going to be pursuing him for financial gains through lawsuits. That never was any intent of mine with anybody on any level. By the time I got out of the house and was able to go back to rehab, he had already moved. He had moved out of state. Had I been able to talk to him, I could have told him that, uh, you know, no, no worries. You know, I'm not, I'm not holding a grudge against you for anything. And I sure don't want to sue you for any recourse, but, um, uh, for whatever reason, you know, he went back home to his parents. And so it's, it's something through the years that I've always wondered, you know, would I ever see him again? Would I recognize him? You know, what, what will we say? You know, it was his gun that discharged into my leg. You know, he left it loaded. He said the gun was safe, but it obviously wasn't or it wouldn't have discharged. Early on, I kind of wished that, you know, he could have been around just to tell me, you know, this is what we were doing. This is what happened. The only way I know what happened prior to the gunshot is with the guys that were in the other boat. You know, there's there's some questions, you know, that he could have answered quickly for me. But uh, unfortunately, like I said, for whatever reason, and I'm speculating on the reason why he moved, you know, <laughs> well, we were hunting that morning. He wasn't talking about moving. So obviously my accident played a role in him moving. Well, I thought a couple of times, what's going to happen if I actually recognize him and walk up on him? You know, of course, it would be easy for him to recognize me, especially if I was wearing shorts. Maybe he could tell me something that would make life better for me. I, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. It's almost like it's not worth it to me. I think I've got more to lose than to gain. But I think I could probably make his life a little easier by him knowing that I harbor no ill will toward him. And so therefore, that unknown almost has been like, yeah, it's better off just not knowing than knowing. That's an unopened or an unclosed aspect of my accident. One of the big things on December the 24th was that we had an ice storm in this city that was a once in 500 year storm. So we had no power and no water and it was like in the twenties. It was very chaotic in the hospital. I was told that they had a, a hand crank ventilator sitting next to me just in case the generated power and on, that I was using for my ventilator went down, they would, uh, they would have to use that hand crank ventilator. So uh, just a bunch of miracles in God in that process keep me alive. A lot of well-trained staff of the hospital that I owe my life to.
all the nurses that dealt with me and while in my stay at the hospital, I try to go back to them every year on the anniversary and see them and tell them thank you. I wasn't supposed to survive that. And, and, you know, I was definitely a miracle to be alive. I learned quickly that we can all die at any moment in time. Not that I hadn't heard that before, but life is definitely short. Uh, Every day I I try to be appreciative that I'm, I'm here and try to, you know, give back. Being as I use the amount of volume of blood that I use, you know, United Blood Services contacted me and said, hey, would you be willing to speak to a group of surgeons and doctors at the hospital because we have this new blood machine. You know, we want you to talk about how important blood is and and how, you know, donations are. And I was like, okay, so I made a C minus in college from speech and you're wanting me to get in front of, you know, a group of highly educated doctors and talk about my accident. They said, yes. (laughs) So, you know, I go from being a shy, quiet guy in high school and pretty much the same way, you know, even today, to uh, how about you go tell about this this miracle that you know of your life? So I did, and and since then, you know, I've spoken to well over 150 different groups, all the way from Boy Scouts to churches to nursing homes to any different group that calls me. Nursing students uh, when they're going through their trauma week, you know, I go sit down and tell them this story. They've already heard a lot of things that happen with patients, but to be able to have a patient come in and discuss it with them gives them a better idea of what to expect, you know, out there in the real world. I can speak to a group that's about to give blood, you know, a different company organization. They'll hear, you know, the story of how important it is and how any one of them could have have a need for blood. And then a lot of people will give blood that normally wouldn't. Blood doesn't grow on trees. Uh, you know, us giving keeps a blood supply available. I think there's one in four adults will use blood in their lifetime at least once. You know, one unit can help up to, I think, three people in the hospital. Our greatest givers of blood in American history was the World War II uh, generation. They gave because they had a shortage, you know, back in in those days, and they learned to give blood, and they gave blood. But unfortunately, that generation now is pretty much gone. And my generation, being 55, has dropped the ball, and we don't give as well as they did. So it's it's definitely a volunteer thing, but you you could literally save three lives with, with every unit you give. So it's definitely, you're giving life back. I ne- it never would have been someone that would have got up in front of a group and spoke. Just That was just God's plan for me. That helps me, you know, to be able to, to use this to help others is, is really cool for me. It's never given that you're going to be here tomorrow or in the next hour. you got to respect that and you got to live your life accordingly. You just learn that, you know, it's just even a bad day is a good day on Earth. Uh, Another day alive is a good day. Today's episode featured Glenn Scarborough. You can reach out to Glenn through email at sleepyg98 at gmail.com. That's sleepy, the letter G, 98 at gmail.com. 
Glenn's story prompted me to look at statistics on blood donation and the national blood shortage crisis we're currently facing. According to the American Red Cross, since the beginning of the pandemic lockdown in March 2020, there has been a 10% overall decline in blood donation. Up to one quarter of hospital blood needs are not being met, and less than 10% of people in the United States donate blood annually. There is no adequate substitute doctors can use for human blood, so they rely entirely on volunteers. And as Glenn pointed out in the interview, donating even one pint of blood can save up to three lives. To find out more about how you can give, go to redcrossblood.org. That's the American Red Cross at redcrossblood.org. From Wondery, you're listening to This Is Actually Happening. If you love what we do, please rate and review the show. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on the Wondery app to listen ad-free and get access to the entire back catalog. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. By supporting them, you help us bring you our show for free. I'm your host, Whit Misseldine. Today's episode was co-produced by me and Jason Blaylock, with special thanks to the This Is Actually Happening team, including Ellen Westberg. The intro music features the song Illibi by Tipper. You can join the community on the This Is Actually Happening discussion group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Actually Happening. On the show's website, thisisactuallyhappening.com, you can find out more about the podcast, contact us with any questions, submit your own story, or visit the store, where you can find This Is Actually Happening designs on stickers, t-shirts, wall art, hoodies, and more. That's thisisactuallyhappening.com. And finally, if you'd like to become an ongoing supporter of what we do, go to patreon.com slash happening. Even two to five dollars a month goes a long way to support our vision. Thank you for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to This Is Actually Happening ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts